First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, Covenant Church, it's so good to be with you this morning, and I'm going to try to hold it together as I was uh, meeting people this morning, I, I was starting to get a little bit emotional. Um, you probably know this fact that I'm going to throw out to you. The, the best-selling book of all time ever is the Bible, right? But you probably don't know this little factoid. The best-selling book series of all time is the Harry Potter Books. Oh, somebody got it, right? And to much of our chagrin, some of you are thinking or hoping it would have been the Lord of the Rings. Well, I'm going to just give you an... <laughs> right. I'm a, I, I was hoping that, uh, but didn't find that out. Well, the, the story of Harry Potter starts out with the lead character, Harry. He's living with his abusive aunt and uncle and cousin, the Dursleys. Uh, and he's living in this uh, little storage area underneath the stairs. It's only big enough to fit a really small bed. You can't stand up in there, so he's, he's really being abused. Uh, and he believes that he has been orphaned. That's why he's living with his aunt and his uncle, right? He believes that his mom and dad were killed in a car accident. Well, on his 11th birthday... Uh, he gets a visit from someone. He gets a visit from a gentle half-giant whose name is Hagrid, Rubius Hagrid. Hagrid brings with him an invitation and some news, some news. And, and the news is this. Harry, your parents are wizards, and therefore you are a wizard. And I have here an invitation to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and wizardry. And you know what? This news that Harry receives, it changes everything for Harry. It gives him a new identity. It gives him new emotions. He feels different about himself. He feels different about other people. He has a new destiny and a new purpose, right? He's going to go to this Hogwarts school and learn how to wield this new power that he has been given. He has a whole new community of people to get to know. He's even going to find out that he has an inheritance. 
Well, in a similar way, but more powerful, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to change everything for those who receive him by faith. And we're going to unpack this idea in the gospel in the passage before us, but before we do, I want to define the term gospel. Most of you guys know this. The, The Greek word euangelion simply means good news, good news. But Paul, the way he is using it here in the passage, it's not just general good news. Like for Harry, there was something specific. And the good news that Paul is talking about is the good news of Christ Jesus. And what is that good news? That God entered human history at a specific time, in a specific place, to a specific people for the very purpose of restoring the relationship between God and man. And he does this by putting on human flesh and coming and living the perfect life for us, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, rising again from the dead to show that he overcomes the grave, death, and sin. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's waiting till everything is put under his rule and his reign. This gospel message was given from the very beginning. You may not know it, but right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we hear this from God. He says to Eve, from your offspring, from your seed will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the good news, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. And the gospel message continues throughout the Old Testament, unfolding until we get into the new, and we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we're talking about gospel this morning, this is the message, this is the good news that we are talking about. Well, there are many implications, there's so many applications to the gospel, but in our passage today, I want to tease out three aspects of the gospel. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these down and they're going to come up. Um, First is that the gospel obliges all followers of Christ, obliges all followers of Christ. Secondly, that the gospel changes our very emotions. It changes our motivations. And thirdly, that the gospel arms us with the greatest power needed on earth. Okay? We'll jump right in to that very first point, that the gospel obliges all followers of Christ. We see this in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, some of you this morning are thinking already to yourself, I heard that word obligation and I hear this thing about good news and good news and obligation don't belong in the same sentence together, right? And if you're a parent, you may be hearing in the back of your head your kids saying, do we have to do fill in the bank or do we have to go to fill in the blank, right? And so in our common vernacular, in in the way we use that word obligation, we have come to to see it as a responsibility, uh, something that we have to do, a commitment. But the word in the Greek is ophelates, ophelates, and it has a specific meaning. Its meaning is to be in debt, to be a debtor, to owe someone something. Some of the translations actually use the word debtor. And so I want to give you an illustration. You guys understand debt, okay, right? Two ways to be in debt. I can be in debt to you in a couple different ways. The first way 
is if you give me a million dollars, you loan it to me, I am in debt until I pay back every last cent to you. But here the second way that you can be in debt. Your friend gives me a million dollars for you. And I'm holding on to that million dollars, and until I give that to you, I am in debt to you. And that is the way that Paul is using this word, ophelates, to be under obligation, okay? Because Paul has been given something to give to other people. And what is that something? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul owes them the gospel not because they gave him something. He owes them the gospel because God has given it to him to give to other people. Now, the scripture says that he is under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That the, what he's saying there, the Greeks are those who are Greek-speaking, those who are in the Greek culture. And the barbarians are basically everyone else. You're not in the Greek culture. Those are all sorts of different cultures. And then the wise and the foolish are those who are educated, those who are not educated. Paul's point is this. He has been given the gospel to give to all classes of people, all cultures, basically everyone, okay? And because the gospel is for everyone, the church is for everyone, Churches for everyone. Our church should be for everyone. I'm not just talking about different ethnicities and races, but all cultures, right? From the worst sinner that you can think of to the most self-righteous saint to Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, they all should feel welcome here because the gospel is for everyone. And no matter how you're going to draw the lines to to chop up and divide up society, those lines should be broken down in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, Scripture is clearly teaching here for us that Paul has this debt. But the question is, for those of us who are following Christ, do we have a similar obligation? Have we been given something so that we can give it to others? Are we a debtor? also to the gospel. Well, our Lord says it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you are in Christ this morning, you have the gospel, you have gospel light, you have the light of Christ in you, and it's meant to be shared, it's meant to be seen. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't put it under a basket. It's meant to be seen by others. You guys are a beacon, you are a lighthouse. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, He would say this, you have been entrusted with the message and the ministry of reconciliation. You are ambassadors for Christ. And ambassadors carry that message. They don't just hide the message. They carry the message to whom it was given. In the same way, you are to be a light. You have been given something. Now suppose just to to drive this point home. 
Suppose you won or you were given all of the free movies and popcorn and snacks that you can have down at that movie theater at Hammock Landing for life. And you were allowed to invite anybody, friends, family, whoever. Um, you would not just keep that to yourself. No, you would go about inviting as many people as you can. Let's eat as much popcorn and snacks as we can, right? Well, church, we have been given something so much greater than movies and popcorn to share with other people. We can look at this debt a second way. We can look at it through the lens of stewardship. Stewardship. Now, I think most people understand stewardship, right? If you, if you have been given a gift, some of you guys out there are great handyman. Well, you, in order to be a good steward, you have to be using that. And some of you folks out there are talented in serving two-year-olds and three-year-olds. And God bless you. You ought to see Lauren DeBoer about that. You ought to be exercising that gift to be a good steward, right? Think about this, though. Of all the things that God has put in your possession, of all the things he has put in your possession, the most valuable, the greatest thing that he has entrusted you with is the gospel. Amen. The gospel. The good news about Christ. And the question is, is it sitting on the shelf, collecting dust? Have you exercised it? Have you shared it? Is it impacting your life and the life of others? The gospel was given to us as a gift to share and not to hoard. Well, I want to give you right away three applications. How do I get started with this? What are some practical ways I can get started in engaging in the gospel of Christ? Three ways. Okay, get equipped, get engaged, and get inviting. And so first off, if, if you are in Christ and you're not comfortable sharing your faith, get equipped. Get equipped. Learn how to share the gospel in a winsome way. And you can come up to any of the pastors, you can come up to our elders, you can come up to our Stephen ministers who have been trained in this, and ask them and set aside a time with them, how can I share the gospel in a winsome way? So get equipped, get engaged. If you've been sitting on the sidelines and not engaging in this, you ought to get engaged, okay? And, and this is what I mean. The reason we do ROAR, the reason we do Lockmar Lights in the past, the reason that we serve at Lockmar Elementary, and Lord willing, we're going to serve at Pineapple Cove, uh, the reason we're doing the pantry, all these things is so that we can bring the gospel in deed and in word. It's a simple step you can take to get involved with the gospel and bringing it to our community. And then lastly, get inviting. Get inviting, right? We printed out those cards, uh, those Easter cards. You know, in our culture today, um, there are people out there that the only time they attend church is two times a year, Christmas and Easter. Well, you have a golden opportunity to invite coworkers and friends and families into this family and worship God and hear the good news, okay? Get equipped, get engaged, get inviting. Uh, think about that as we unpack the other two aspects of the gospel. Well, this, the uh, second aspect of the gospel I want to bring to you this morning is that the gospel changes our emotions and our motivations. We see this in verses 15 and 16. 
Paul says this, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul, his emotions, his motivations were changed. He is now eager to share the gospel. He is not ashamed to be associated with Christ and the good news about Christ. And if you recall back to our study in Acts that we've been going through, who is this Paul? This Paul was the guy that persecuted the church. He would not have wanted to be associated with Christ. He's the one that stood by while Stephen was being stoned for what? For preaching the good news. And how ironic it is now that Paul can say that I am eager about this very same good news. I want to preach it now as well. Paul has, God has changed Paul's emotions about the gospel. You know, I had a boss uh, once early on after uh, I graduated college. One of my first bosses, uh, he gave me his psychology about human motivation. It was very interesting, uh, very disturbing too. He said, (laughs) think about this, he said that people are basically motivated only by two things, greed and fear. Now, how would you like to be a young, young guy, a young professional, and have your boss, you know, looking at you through that lens only, and it really does things to your mind. Um, But, but shame, being ashamed, is also a powerful motivator for us, right? And maybe you can lump it under that fear factor as well. Paul is saying, I am no longer ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And if you think about it, Paul would have every reason to shrink back and be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel of Christ has liability, has risk, right? For for Paul, it meant ridicule. For Paul, it meant being an outcast. For Paul, it meant people are going to throw rocks at you, literally. It meant prison. It meant death. Paul suffered all of these things. But his emotions, his motivations about this very message, about the person of Christ had changed. And why is that? What was his motivation now? Was it, was, it, was it some other form of greed or fear or shame or anything else negative like that? Well, it's not. Paul was motivated. He was changed simply by this. Jesus had saved his life. Jesus had saved his life. Jesus saved him from being on the wrong side of history. Jesus saved him from his own self-righteousness and self-justification, Jesus saved him from eternal condemnation. Paul was motivated because he realized he was loved unconditionally by the God of this universe, the one who matters most. It was a very personal thing to Paul. It wasn't abstract theology, facts, or ideas. It's very personal. He says it this way, to his young protege, Timothy, in chapter one. Listen to this, how personal it is. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, 
but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. See, when Paul encountered the risen Lord, he realized this. He realized Jesus had every right to extinguish him from the face of the earth because Paul was persecuting, was an enemy of Christ. But instead of receiving wrath, he received mercy. He received grace. He received what he did not deserve, the unconditional love of God, and that changed him at the heart level. And so the question for you is, is has your heart been captivated by the gospel, by the good news of Christ? Have you been captivated by the beauty that, that Christ is? Is he changing your emotions and your very motivations? Because if you see, if you know that you are loved unconditionally by the God of this universe, it's going to change everything about you, including your very emotions and your motivations, especially when it comes to Christ himself and the good news. And so what are you eager? What are you passionate about this morning? So for me, one of the most convicting passages in all of Scripture is found in Jonah chapter 4. You guys, most of you have heard a little bit about Jonah, know the story. He's the guy that got swallowed by the big fish, right? So let me me just give you the 20-second recap of the story and bring you right up to the very end uh, where I want to focus on. So Jonah, he, he receives uh, this from the Lord that God says to him, I have a message that I wanna, want you to bring to the Ninevites. And that's, that's the capital of Assyria. Uh, and Jonah wants nothing to do with that. Why? Because the, the Assyrians are their enemies. And so he decides to try to flee from God. And by the way, that, that never works out, does it? <laughs> right? That's how he gets into the belly of the big fish. Well, I'm sure being in the belly of a big fish for a number of days causes you to repent and have a change of heart, and that's what he does. Um, And then the fish vomits him out onto the land. And my imagination goes kind of wild here. I think of uh, Jonah covered in fish slime and fish guts and all sorts of things, and so he's probably having to clean himself up and and gear himself up to take the message uh, to Nineveh. And he does it. He takes the message to Nineveh, and uh, surprisingly, to his chagrin, uh, they repent. And Jonah goes to the outside of the city, and he sits down, and he waits to see what happens. And this is what I want to focus on. What happens uh, is an object lesson. Uh, the Lord causes a plant to grow up over Jonah. Uh, why? Because it's hot. Uh, the wind is scorching him. Uh, and so the Lord, by his grace, causes this plant to grow up, and he gets some comfort. He gets some pleasure. And the scripture actually says that Jonah was exceedingly glad. He was happy. He was overjoyed because of this plant. But then there's a twist. The next day, what happens? Well, the worm. Somebody said the worm. That's right. The worm comes, and what does it do? It eats up the plant. And Jonah gets angry. 
And that's what takes us to the last two verses in the story. That's I want to read to you these two verses. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Here's the point. There's so many lessons we can learn from this, but I want to focus on the emotions, right? Remember I said that Jonah was exceedingly glad. He was over the top happy, and then he got angry. What God is basically saying to him is, Jonah, your emotions reveal your heart. Your emotions reveal what's motivating and driving you on the inside. You see, because Jonah was so happy about something temporary that was giving him comfort, giving him pleasure. And the question is, was his emotions even engaged over eternal things, over the souls of people? And that's where this passage just hits me right between the eyes. And I have to ask myself, am I more excited? Do I get more excited about a good meal, going to the movies, going to a football game? Those things get so exciting to me. And if they're taken away, do I get angry and upset? Maybe just like Jonah? But what about when it comes to eternal things? What about it when it comes to the souls of people, neighbors and friends and family? Are my emotions even engaged? Has the gospel captured my heart? Well, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. In Palm Sunday, there's a lot of emotions going on. There's shouting, there's blessing, there's praise. Hosanna, which means save us, please save us. And the question is, Were there some in the crowd who were so joyful, so exuberant, because they were hoping that Jesus would save them from the Romans, that they would get a little bit of comfort, a little bit of space, make life easier for themselves when they should have realized that they needed saving eternally, they needed salvation from their sins. And so the question for us is, has Jesus captured our emotions? Has he captured our heart level motivations? Well, let's look at this third point, this third aspect of the gospel, that the gospel arms us with the greatest power needed on earth. Verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And if, if I were to wave a magic wand and give you the greatest power on earth, how would you use it? How would you use it? And some of us, we, you know, we would think, man, I want to end this war uh, that's going on in Ukraine. That's a, that's a good thing, right? Maybe take it a step further. I'm going to end all violence, all suffering. I'm going to end poverty and world hunger. 
And some of you out there is thinking, I'm going to bring back all of the extinct animals, right? The dinosaurs. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, my imagination is going wild again. Um, (laughs) These are all good things, right? But the solution to all of our problems lies in the good news, the gospel. Why? Because everyone's deepest and most critical need is to be restored in their relationship with their creator, God. It's everyone's deepest need. Everything that is wrong in the world today, you can make a giant list. Everything that is wrong in the world today stems from the severing of our relationship with God. And so when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, they broke everything. They broke everything. All the misery that we see, death, disease, war, abuse, addiction, violence, the destruction of our environment, everything stems from the fact that our relationship with God has been severed. And so when you think of Vladimir Putin, Yes, he needs to stop aggression, but he needs more than that. Just like Paul, he needs an encounter with the risen Lord. He needs to fall on the mercy and the grace of Christ. He needs a new heart. He needs to be restored in his relationship with his creator, God. Our scripture this morning is saying that The gospel is the power that accomplishes this task. And there's no other power on earth that can do this. Nuclear power, all the money in the world, Elon Musk, whatever it is you're thinking of, cannot accomplish this task. And the gospel, it accomplishes this task by giving us what we need the most. What we need the most is righteousness. We need righteousness. Why? Because God, he is a righteous God. He's a holy God. He cannot be in relationship with sin and evil. Paul says this a couple chapters later, that there's none righteous, no, not even one. But the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. How does it do that? It does it in a couple ways, in the person and in the work of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. He is the righteous one. He is the one who is born yet without sin. He's the only one. And by what he has done, he lived the perfect life, the life that you and I cannot live. He lived righteously. Paul says it this way. This is how the gospel works. These are the nuts and bolts of the gospel. Uh, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is the nuts and bolts. This is how it actually works. How can a righteous God accept sinners in his presence? Well, Jesus, who is the sinless righteous one, he takes upon himself our sin And he gives us freely his perfect righteousness. That's the great exchange that takes place in the gospel for those who receive Christ by faith. And so righteousness is not achieved 
by doing. Righteousness is received by faith. Now, when Martin Luther came across these passages and others in Romans and learned about the righteousness of God, uh, he understood something. He understood that God was righteous and that he had to be righteous to be in a relationship with God. So you know what he tried to do? He tried to do righteousness. He tried to become righteousness. And what did he find out? The more he tried to become righteous, the more he failed at it the more he realized that he had no righteousness in himself. And he could agree with Paul that there is none righteous, no, not even one. But when he came to this passage in Romans and found out that righteousness comes by faith, it changed everything for Martin Luther. And that's what we know as the beginning of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. We are declared righteous before God through faith. And that's the good news this morning. We don't earn it by doing. We receive it by what Christ has done. And so if you are in Christ this morning, Realize this, you have in your possession this greatest power that's needed on earth today, and it's changing or should be changing your emotions and your motivations, and it's been given to you to give to others. And so are you stewarding it, or is it just sitting idly? And so I want to remind you of those practical things to get started. Get equipped, get engaged, and get inviting but also this, meditate on these great truths so that your equipping, engaging, and inviting is not done out of duty, but it's done out of beauty. When you look upon Christ and what he has done for you and how he loves you no matter what you have done, all of your sin, and how you always continually fall short. Let that grab a hold of your heart and your emotions and captivate you. And if you are here this morning and you have yet to follow Christ by faith, let me invite you this way. Trust in him. Look to him. Look at what he has done for you. He laid down his very life so that you too can have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, mighty God, you are so good. When we look upon the cross of your Son, we see horrible things and we see beautiful things at the same time. We see the horror of him being nailed to the cross for our sins, but we see the beauty of Christ's overflowing love, his grace towards people who don't deserve it. And so, Father, let that capture our heart and our emotions. Let it, let it be something of joy to us, more so than a football game or a good meal. Let it change our emotions. Let it change our motivations. And, Lord, I pray for the person here this morning who is yet to be captivated by the beauty that is Christ, all he has done, who he is, and what he has done. I pray that you would work in their hearts, open their eyes to see the love that you have for them in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.